somebody that Americans may not have heard of, Prince Clemens von Metternich. He was Austria's foreign minister slash chancellor in this period. He was a major architect of Napoleon's defeat that, as Adams explains in the book, that Metternich brokered Napoleon's marriage to his second wife, Mary Louise of Austria, in order to get Napoleon to think that Austria was a neutral state and would not threaten France, which then convinced Napoleon that it was safe to invade Russia in 1812. Predicting Napoleon's defeat there, Metternich arranged for the rest of Europe to then strike France after he just lost 600,000 troops in Russia, which forced Napoleon's first abdication. And then he organizes what's called the Congress of Vienna in the Concert of Europe, which helps to avoid at least a major war in Europe of that scale for a hundred years until World War One. Wow. So this is sort of the adversary that Adams is going up against. Wow. Welcome to Talk With History. I am your host, Scott, here with my wife and historian, Jen. Hello. On this podcast, we give you insights to our history-inspired world travels, YouTube channel journey, and examine history through deeper conversations with the curious, the explorers, and the history lovers out there. Now, today's a little different. We haven't done an interview in a while, and we are actually joined by Michael B. Zucker, the author of multiple books spanning from historical fiction to the book we are here to chat about today that goes into depth about the middle generation. That's the title of the book, Our Founding Fathers, specifically John Quincy Adams. This sounds like a good holiday book for the history fan. <laughs> it a ho- does. holiday present for the for the history fan out there. The, the timing is uh, <laughs> I'm sure intentional for book for book releases. Now, what I what I kind of wanted to just jump right into is is what brought you into kind of the history niche um, and are are you working in that in that industry right now and and if not working in that industry, what kind of brought you around to this particular topic for the middle generation? So I gained interest in history when I was around 15. Um, you know, like a lot of teenage boys, I had an interest in, you know, superheroes and that type of thing. Um, and then I think World War II is initially what caught my attention of this sort of like global struggle of, you know, good and evil, that sort of thing, all these heroes and villains. So that was sort of the initial entry point. And then uh, General Eisenhower became the person who I sort of hooked on to from there. Then to his presidency, which then kind of extended to like all presidents. Um, so my first sort of major novel as an adult is called The Eisenhower Chronicles, which is sort of like an HBO miniseries in a novel format, like 15 different episodes through World War II and his presidency. Um, um, and that I think that's a a good book. I'm proud of it, but at the same time, it was sort of like a learning experience. Um, and by the end of it, I wanted to do a somewhat similar topic, just kind of test what I learned as a writer from that experience. And so John Quincy Adams, to me, made sense sort of if Eisenhower was this sort of giant of 20th century America, Adams was this giant of early 19th century America. They were both, in my view, these masters of foreign policy. Um, and this novel it largely focuses focuses on Adams's time as Secretary of State. 
Uh, he's usually ranked as the greatest secretary of state in American history. And so just some of the different things, so like, you know, part of the reason why the title is the middle generation is the idea that it's this kind of overlooked era kind of sandwiched between the revolution and the founding fathers, and then later Abraham Lincoln and the civil war. And to most Americans, you know, this second generation of that era, you know, they might know that somebody like Andrew Jackson, or they may have heard of like the Monroe Doctrine, but it's largely overlooked. Yeah, I, so, I guess to your point that, you know, there's a lot of people that they know a lot of the flagpole moments, but there's all this stuff that happened in between. And it yeah. sounds like that's what you kind of dive into. Yeah, so it's so it's Adams as Secretary of State. And it's um, so James Monroe is president. Um, you know, so what's called the era of good feelings, although it's the novel shows and it's, you know, very a lot of research went into it. I had about 400 pages of notes um, that I was working off of that there was multiple crises going on that Monroe and Adams were navigating. Um, the biggest one is one that I was surprised I never heard of given my interest in foreign like the history of American foreign policy um, and which is sort of the origin story behind the Monroe Doctrine which was that the what was called the Holy Alliance, which was this alliance of I'm not using this word in the modern context, but again, it's historical context of conservative monarchies in Europe, namely Austria, Prussia, which was a large German state and Russia had joined together after defeating Napoleon in order to enforce the peace in Europe that they blamed the Enlightenment and the American and French revolutions on Napoleon and 25 years of warfare. Um, so they were more than a little suspicious of sort of the Enlightenment project. Napoleon at one point had invaded Spain and tried to put his brother in charge of Spain and removed King Ferdinand, who was the Spanish monarch. And that was seen as illegitimate across Spanish America. So both Mexico, Central America, and most of South America. South America and Mexico were, were waging wars of independence against the Spanish Empire in this period. And that's sort of the initial crisis that the Monroe administration inherits. And so, and that's where the book starts is that is Monroe, Adams, and the rest of the cabinet um, sort of navigating that situation of, you know, most Americans support South American independence. Um, and most of them want to at the very least, diplomatically recognize these new republics emerging in South America. But Adams is concerned that if we recognize them, that could lead to war with Spain, which could then lead to war with the Holy Alliance, which, you know, the United States, this is the second generation that the United States exists. Monroe is the last of the founding father presidents. Mm -hmm. We're not really in a position to go to war yeah, with right most of Europe. So, so was, was from, and again, I, I kind of joke all the time, right? And I, I never assume people listen to the podcast, although we've been growing a little bit, but <laughs> I, I never assume. And we joke all the time, right? Jen's the historian. She's got her graduate degree. She's working on her own historical fiction book. Mm -hmm you know, all, all this stuff. And I am, I am married into history. Nerd he knows it though. He has a um, political science degree. So, so I was a poli science. And poli he has a master's degree in, in national, but it's military oriented <laughs> master's degree. Um, but it, it sounds to me like John Quincy Adams, and please correct me if I'm wrong, was like one of the, one of the first, 
you know, like you said, kind of this this next generation of of leaders in America that kind of really had to navigate these global politics because we just couldn't literally afford to to get into like a large scale war with you know all of these other large nations like we're just trying to settle and grow and yeah and, and grow the nation right now we're a small country at the time i mean small economically and small military wise we're not we're not like france or germany or england at the time so we can't really fight that type of war and so we have to be very careful of who we are recognizing and who we make mad. Yeah, so is, is that really kind of why you, what you found when you were doing, you know, 400 pages plus of, of research? Yes, yeah, so, um, you, you as you were saying, we weren't a big country yet. So what's interesting is this is the period where, you know, and Adams spearheaded this effort to sort of elevate the United States from being what we would now call a minor power into a medium power. And then by like the end of the 1800s with the war, the Spanish-American War and Teddy Roosevelt, we become a great power. But so we spend most of the 1800s as kind of a medium power. And this is the point where that happens. And Monroe is interested in this, but Adams in particular um, is hoping to take advantage of the Spanish Empire's collapse and set the United States in control of the North American continent in order largely not both for its own purposes but he's also hoping that if he does that the country will like him and elect him as the next president one of the major subplots and not just subplots but like you know central to his sort of character arc in the novel is the the issue of whether that was actually his desire to become president and how much of it is being the eldest son of john and abigail adams and their legacy very extreme expectations of him. Um, they didn't quite put it in these words, but almost framing it as, you know, we established this country so you will become president. Wow. Hmm. Um, so this extreme ambition. And also there's a, um, a quote that uh, Abigail Adams says at the end of the first section of the book, and it's an actual quote of hers where she says something to the effect that if you are not basically the most virtuous person that a human can possibly be, then I'd rather you had just died in the ocean than be here. Oh, it's a loving and mother. So it's this ex <laughs> it's extreme um, ambition and virtue simultaneously that he feels obligated to fulfill. And that's sort of the foundation of that, of John Quincy Adams as a character in the novel and sort of his arc in the novel of trying to live up to both of those extreme and somewhat contradictory values that's that's interesting so and, so you mentioned the, the the character arc of of john quincy adams in your book i mean what can you kind of like paint like a a, a little bit of that picture of that character arc as he's going through yes and can you tell us book? like what's his age ages here and is he now he's the is he the first president to have a foreign wife or yes and then she's another very important character is um louisa catherine adams um, she's probably the second most important character in the book after John Quincy Adams himself. And part of her character arc is, and it's, you don't initially get the connection with this, but you, by the end of the first section, you can kind of see how this all fits, is Adams is quite hard on his own family. 
um, both on his wife and his three sons, especially his eldest son. And it seems pretty clear to me, and I think most of his biographers also say this, that the pressure that his parents were putting on him, he was in turn taking out on his own family. Um, and not, not ordering his sons to become presidents, but still putting a lot of weight on them to be successful. We would probably now call it at least verbally abusive to his wife and sons. And, you know, that was sort of, so it was like his parents, their weight upon him sort of distorted his own personality. Yeah. So I he mean, that, took that it sounds own, like, like human family. nature, right? You know, people... People change and we learn a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. over the decades, over the centuries, yes. but people don't change that much, you yeah. know, if, if and you And it's have, generational. It, it absolutely is. So It absolutely is. So, so my question, I have a couple of questions too. Um, middle generation, did you coin that term or is that something you had seen or something that has been used before? That specific phrase, as far as I know, uh, I just came up with it. It's, I, yeah, I, I, I like it. I trying to figure out a title. I, it paints a picture <laughs> um, very, you know, quickly. And the idea is that, you know, obviously he's the son of the second president. And um, a lot of his, I mean, his career was started when George Washington appointed him ambassador to the Netherlands um, in the 1790s. So it's like his career starts with Washington and John Adams. The rest of this is kind of discussed more in the author's note at the end, but that his career ends as a mentor to Abraham Lincoln in Congress. That's oh, so wow. cool. That's so cool. So he, so he's like the primary link between mm -hmm. the founders and Lincoln, and I think the concept of the middle generation highlights that. And then cool. you said in your research, where did you do um, the pri the bulk of your research? Like, what archive were you looking in, and where were you um, researching from? So by far the most important uh, source of information was that Adams kept a 51 volume diary throughout his life. Whoa. Um, which thankfully the Massachusetts Historical Society digitized and has on their website and built in a search engine. Yes. That wow. allowed me to <laughs> navigate the, it. For the win. <laughs> uh. Yeah, which in terms of like the 400 pages, at least half of that is from, from there. is is diary entries and kind of pulling like okay this is like because he because he wrote down a lot of the time like you know cabinet meeting today I said this Treasury Secretary Crawford said this I told him he was wrong over this and um, really laying them out and yeah so that was a hugely critical source of information yeah both in terms of you know what happened and. Just getting a sense of um, his voice, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it is a first-person novel, so it's you know very much rooted in his perspective and sort of as he's navigating these different situations. So I think just getting that the sound of his voice, you know, really in my head, so I can embody it. Um, yeah, and that's and that's kind of a. Yeah. That's cool. You know, for for historians like you two, right? I, I won't put myself in your category. I'm not. I'm not that smart. <laughs> but uh, but but for historians like you, when you're doing that kind of research, that's probably like the most valuable you know source you could get from the person, mm -hmm. right? And like you said, you you read enough 51 volumes, you know, to really get his voice, right? And I mean, that's that's a lot of writing. I mean, I think if I wrote that much, people would be able to figure out kind of my tone and my mm -hmm. personality through that. So um, that's really neat that you were able to get so much of your material, you know, basically directly from the source. Yeah. And then is he living in DC during this time? 
Yes. Um, so he's living, it was at the time it was called Washington city. Okay. Um, but yes, he was living in, and I don't remember off the top of my head, the exact addresses, but they're in the novel. He lives in two different locations. Um, in in dc and it says like it's at the intersection of here and here and then later here and there and i have to look at the novel to remember exactly where yeah so in your research and as you were writing the book was there any kind of one thing you know one or two things that kind of really stood out to you that surprised you when you were doing this research that to either learn about john quincy adams or something that he did that you didn't know or or most people don't know that that they should or that you learn and you're just like oh my gosh i can't believe i i can't believe this is true and it's not better better known well the first one i would say is again i actually didn't fully finish the point from earlier that the origin story of the monroe doctrine um so if anybody who's read about, you know, Napoleon in that era of European history may have heard of the Holy Alliance, but that as South America was gaining its independence, the Holy Alliance sort of declared that they would not legally recognize these new republics as independent and that they wanted to reimpose the Spanish Empire because they feared that in the same way that American independence led to the French Revolution, that South American independence would lead to another European cataclysm. And Adams figured out fairly quickly that they were trying to spook us into making a joint statement with Britain against this, which would sort of tell the world by making a joint statement that the United States could not defend the Western Hemisphere on its own, and we would lose a lot of our credibility as we were trying to rise in the world. Oh, interesting. Um, and... One of the key leaders of the Holy Alliance is somebody that Americans may not have heard of, some might have, um, Prince Clemens von Metternich, who, he was Austria's foreign minister slash chancellor in this period. Okay. He was a major architect of Napoleon's defeat, mm. that as Adams explains in the book when he's analyzing Metternich, that Metternich brokered Napoleon's marriage to his second wife, Mary Louise of Austria, in order to get Napoleon to think that Austria was a neutral state and would not threaten France, which then convinced Napoleon that it was safe to invade Russia in 1812. And predicting Napoleon's defeat there, Metternich sort of arranged for the rest of Europe to then strike France after he just lost 600,000 troops in Russia, which forced Napoleon's first abdication. And so, this is, you know, the overall leader of the Holy... Oh, and then he organizes what's called the Congress of Vienna in the Concert of Europe, which helps to avoid at least a major war in Europe of that scale for a hundred years until World War One. Wow. So this is sort of the adversary that Adams is going up against. Wow. And their diplomatic chess match mm -hmm. is the main conflict of the novel, a chess match over the Western Hemisphere's independence from Europe. And I don't want to spoil the ending but the monroe doctrine emerges from this sort of showdown between america's greatest secretary of state and who the person who might be europe's greatest ever diplomat you, you know i'm not gonna lie like the way you spelled that out i mean that could absolutely be a mini series well and now you know, I michael mean, that's, that's so interesting now with the movie coming out everyone's gonna want to know the what happened what happened and who are the other people and it's a perfect time right 
because it makes it gives us an American hero in the story too. Right you on know, the other side of it, yeah, yeah. And I didn't uh, know that Ridley Scott was working on this when I started. Yeah. Uh, but another thing you mentioned the timing with the holidays. Obviously, that was a factor, but also mm-hmm. um, November twenty twenty three, which is you know the month of this release, and at least when we're recording this, um, it's also the two hundredth anniversary of the Monroe Doctrine. Oh yeah. Okay. Which is another thing. I when I started working on it, I didn't know that, but then it occurred to me after I looked at the date like twenty times. Like, wait a second. <laughs> oh, I'll have to. I'll have to make sure when we start kind of sharing this and stuff like that. We we kind of toss that out there. Yeah. We is it so? There. The Monroe Doctrine, I assume, is in the National Archives. Is it something you could visit? Um. Well, it's it was part of President Monroe. We now nowadays we would call it a State of the Union address. Oh, it was just like a speech. Um, it was part of us. It was part of his. They, at then they called it the annual message to Congress. Okay. It was just like a section of a, of his speech where he's laying out that you know we oppose future European colonization of this hemisphere, mm-hmm. and in exchange we won't get involved in European affairs. Yeah. Um. I don't know where the archive, like the Is archive it- of that speech, would be. It probably either National Archives or maybe Highland, which is his. Monroe's estate in Virginia. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. we haven't visited there yet. Yeah, because um, it would be cool to visit it for the two hundredth anniversary. <laughs> that would be pretty neat. Yeah, I, I, I'm. I'm fascinated. I'm curious. So, do you go? So, in this book, are you focusing primarily on the American side, or do you you kind of spell out a little bit more uh, of the the European side of things, like you were telling us about Metternich and and everything like that? Because that story sounds quite quite interesting. Well, since it is a first-person novel, it pretty much sticks with Adams. Okay, um, but he does. He do, he talks a lot about like you know, this is who Metternich is, yeah, mm-hmm. and this is what he's done, and why he's you know kind of building up the, the adversary, you know, to kind of help feed the conflict of the novel. Like this is the threat that we are facing. Have you have you ever thought I'm I'm sorry I'm I'm latching on to something that I just find so interesting <laughs> but the with the with the Metternich character I mean have you thought about like hey you know how neat would it be to kind of write almost like a companion novel same era but from from the European from Metternich's perspective I mean how interesting would that be right from someone who's a key player in all of all the stuff that you were spelling out with Napoleon and France and everything that's mm-hmm. going on but this character that a lot of people may not be familiar with but was who is so pivotal maybe the middle generation over in europe but i mean have you have you ever thought about that i mean what made you want to write this as a kind of first person perspective vice third person vice the the typical third person Mm -hmm. right i mean part of it was again with the eisenhower book i had kind of experimented a bit so some chapters are in third person others Mm -hmm. are in first person okay and i just learned that i liked first person a lot and the couple of editors who had worked on that book said that those were actually the best chapters of that book so that was kind of like okay let's well let me see if i could write an entire book in the first person so i'd committed to that before um kind of seeing what this actual conflict would be um as far as writing about metternich i actually think i have that in my list of potential novel ideas but i want to find things that like have not been written about too much and there are a number of biographies of him mm. yeah i think um, napoleon's I a pretty popular topic yeah so. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah. Uh, absolutely and then um i don't 
think there's been much historical fiction of Metternich outside of whenever he shows up in some sort of Napoleon content. I mean, I have ideas for what I want to do next, and I don't know if I'm going to get to Metternich at some point. Sure. Talk I, d- more I, just, I just thought that was interesting, right, from a non-historian. Mm-hmm. One of the questions I actually have on here is, you know, if you're going to convince a non-history fan like myself to, to read your book, um, you know, how, how would you do that? And to me, little interesting anecdotes like that, you know, whether it's the the global kind of political chess, you know, that, that you were mentioning between John Quincy Adams and, and Metternich or some of the other interesting aspects of it. Like if you were going to try to say, hey, I know you're not a history person, but here's why you might be interested in my book. Like, what do you think one of the one or two of those things might be? Well, I mean, I went, I really tried to write this so it reads more like a political thriller mm-hmm. than like okay. a than like a textbook of some kind. Like every scene has you know maneuverings, calculations, cool revelations of some kind. Um, so I think, I mean, the idea was that the plot really kind of keeps driving. Yeah. forward in that way and then it's also a character study for people who are more interested in really digging into a person so as as i said you know adams has this sort of complicated character arc that plays out throughout the novel i mean to i don't want to yeah, keep don't away, away the ending but to, yeah no but, to but, put that, it, but that's i mean that's that's perfect right so again you, you kind of again write it more as your your classic you know first person fiction novel but it's it's incredibly historical and, and you know deeply researched um, Michael, I commend you because John Quincy Adams, when you talk about him, he seems perfect, right? Because he's witnessing his father. He's part, he's watching all of this. He's being kind of manipulated by his parents. So he's always strategic there. You know, what do they want from me? What are they really looking for when they are saying this to me? He has a foreign wife, so he can kind of get some ideas about foreign policy from her. And then he's kind of the background guy in all of this he's really standing back and watching all of it and kind of taking you know taking the time to be strategic in what he's doing it's it he really is the perfect person for this it's almost like he was born for this yeah for for this kind of like like you said a political thriller i think that's a great way to to pitch it to someone who's like uh, i don't know about john quincy adams like no no no, this is different this is this reads much more like a a Mm -hmm. political thriller from a, a researched perspective, really in his voice. I think that's incredibly fascinating. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, one other thing I'll just throw in with regards to the character study part is that, because um, my obviously my wife read the book and she thought he was very relatable in that, in the sense of this parental pressure, not just to succeed, but part of what I think sort of hurt him as like a, his like both his mental health and then why he, became this sort of human porcupine figure to everybody else was that I don't actually think he wanted to be um, a politician or in diplomacy. I think my sense is that he was more interested in astronomy and poetry. Yeah. Huh. And his parents being John and Abigail Adams pushed him into this. Um, And that's never explicitly said, but it's sort of hinted at in the book that like, you know, looking at the stars or writing a poem is how he sort of relaxes and feels at peace. And so she was, so, she, you know, as she was reading, she said she felt like he was a very relatable character sure. to, to focus on um, for anybody who's, you know, had parental pressure in any capacity. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, because when you think about it, let's think about this. Like George Washington has no children. So, I mean, no, you know, biological children. And then Jefferson, he does, he has a daughter. So Adams, John Quincy Adams is like the first boy of America when you think about it. Oh, sure. Right? So that's a lot of pressure. I think it's great that you fleshed out this story and you found something that is, you know, really is something that's so foundational to America and really a part of a bigger story with this whole Napoleon coming out. Like it really is. And you have John Quincy Adams who doesn't want to be thrust into the middle of all of this political negotiation, but he's good at it because he's watched it for a long time and he's, and he is kind of like, he kind of can see what's going on. So I think this is fantastic. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. How how long did it take you to do all of this research? It must have taken a little while. Yeah, so it took about three months of sort of just saturation in the research to sort of learn who Adams was, the other players we haven't discussed, you know, Henry Clay and um, John C. Calhoun yet, but they're uh, very important side characters, um, as well as Monroe, and sort of, so it took about three three months of research to learn everybody and basically plan out the story. And then the rough draft took about six months. And then the second draft, which was like kind of like the main draft, was another three months or so. And then just a few or more months of just kind of just polishing it. So all in all, it was about a year, year, year and a half. Yeah. Or so. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so you say the other characters involved. So again, what's the what's the timeline of the book? What what are we looking at? A year? We're looking at uh, no. So it covers the entire Monroe presidency, okay. which is the, the full length of when Adams the Secretary of State. So it starts in eighteen seventeen, the end of eighteen seventeen, and it ends in eighteen twenty five. I was surprised to learn that Adams was allied with both John C. Calhoun and Andrew Jackson in this period um, and enemies with Henry Clay because I think to anybody who is at all familiar with these people you would expect it was the reverse that Adams and Clay seem like natural allies because on domestic politics they agree almost entirely with regards to um, infrastructure well, now we would call it infrastructure back then they called it internal improvements um, so a somewhat more active federal government some looking more like Abraham, uh, alexander hamilton than thomas jefferson in terms of domestic policies um as well as both being um opposed to slavery adams more than clay but both being opposed to slavery whereas john c calhoun is sort of to the extent that he's remembered it's largely as the leading defender of slavery in that second generation and as well as setting the ideological foundation for the Confederacy during the Civil War, including the concept of null the state nullification of federal law. And then Andrew Jackson, of course, um, is mostly known for the Trail of Tears and um, other, you know, things that are look viewed negatively nowadays. Uh, so the fact that Adams was allied with Calhoun and Jackson and opposed to Clay, and again, I don't want to get too much away, but there's a large reversal of allegiances throughout this novel of these different figures for figuring out like who can I team up with in order to sort of both win these debates but also who we can bunch states together to win the electoral college come uh, the 1824 election um, so yeah that was another sort of another aspect that I wasn't expecting when I started off with this topic 
Well, I, I tell you what, it, I mean, the, the way you kind of describe the era and the setting and both, you know, kind of some internal conflicts and alliances and then global, you know, politics and chess chess matches, it sounds like a prime setting for, to, to your point earlier, a political thriller. This sounds great. Um, it, it sounds in, incredibly interesting. So I, I, I'm excited to... Uh, I'm excited to read this. Yeah, potentially get our hands on it. I think this could be the next uh, Hamilton <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. I mean, this, Quincy this, Adams. This, 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 is, this is a mini series or something like that, yeah. right? You know, like like let's get some Hollywood writers. The writer strike just just ended, <laughs> right? Not too long ago. So let's get some some book copies out there, and they can write the next uh, yeah. the next HBO mini series or something like that. I love this. This yeah. is fantastic. So I can't wait to get this out. Well, let me um, let me get again, kind of best place for people to find you to look up your book. And and then uh, and then I'll, I'll sign off here. But again, let's kind of remind everybody. You know, if they're interested in now is that is the title just the middle generation or is it the full? You know, John Quincy Adams and the Monroe Doctrine, the middle generation. Is that the full title? Uh, so the the main title is the middle generation, and then it's subtitled a novel of John Quincy Adams and and the Monroe Doctrine. Okay, um, which it's just in this kind of digital age, it's helpful both with the algorithm and just to kind of catch people's attention to say like this is what this product is yeah sure absolutely uh, so that was a part of the thinking um there but yeah so uh if they're interested in the novel the easiest place is amazon um it's also on on barnes and noble and the other major uh book selling websites um if they're interested in following me online the best place is i mean i still call it twitter i guess Technically, it's called X now. I I, I, think <laughs> I, still, I still call it Twitter too. <laughs> yeah, I think most people still call it Twitter. Um, at, uh, it's so at Michael Zucker one. Cool. Well, I, I absolutely encourage people to to look up uh, Michael's book, The Middle Generation, um, and then the subtitle is a novel, John uh, John Quincy Adams and the Monroe Doctrine. So look that up on Amazon. It sounds absolutely fascinating, especially as a political thriller from a first person perspective. I, it sounds to me like our audience would be incredibly keen on this. So if you're listening, this is a great kind of, uh, if you're still looking for those those Christmas gift ideas for, for that history fan in your household, this sounds like it might be right up your alley. Uh, exactly. And if you're going to see Napoleon and you want to say, oh, well, let me let tell you a little something what happened after Napoleon. Yeah, from the American side. And flex your uh, knowledge muscle. This will be a great book to get as well. There you go. So for those listening, thank you for listening to the Talk With History podcast. And please reach out to us at our website, talkwithhistory.com. But more importantly, if you know someone else that might enjoy this podcast or you think they might enjoy this book, Please shoot him a text and share it with them. We rely on you, our community, to grow, and we appreciate you all every day. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Yeah, Michael, that was that was great. I'm I'm super interested. Me in, too. Uh, in hearing this, I know this one's gonna love to read that. Yeah, I think this is great.